0: I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. Welcome to Tactical Tuesday, short-form conversations with subject matter experts designed to give you the practical tools, tips, and advice to build your solar business or career and grow with us here on Suncast. Today's expert guide is Greg Nimit, a professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison, who teaches on policy analysis, energy systems, and international environmental policy. His research focuses particularly on understanding the process of technological change and the ways in which policy can affect that change. He received an Andrew Carnegie Fellowship in 2017, uh, which particularly calls to me as I'm a big fan of Andrew Carnegie. And he used it to write a book that I had not yet heard of and intend still to dig into, All about how solar provides lessons for the development of other low-carbon technologies. It's called How Solar Energy Became Cheap, a Model for Low-Carbon Innovation. We'll link to that. It was published in 2019. We're going to dig into some of the takeaways from his 20 years of research into exactly how solar achieved such dramatic price drop and return to the industry and helped in this energy transition. He's also currently a lead author for the IPCC's sixth assessment report. We'll dig a little bit into some of the ways that his research is contributing to how innovation is being spurred around the world. I'm really glad that you've decided to join us here and level up your game, as I mentioned before. You can find these resources and more, including many links that I've dug up in my research to prepare for this interview over at mysuncast.com. That's also where you'll find links to connect with today's guest. So let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, Greg Nimit is a professor, a researcher, and an esteemed author who has been featured in nothing less than the IPC 6th assessment. Uh, we'll link to some of the research that Greg has published. Today, we're going to talk about the broader innovation sector around climate change and uh, climate technology you can learn from the rapid Reduction in price, the rapid ex- exploitation of this technology, and expansion of it throughout the United States and indeed the world, and to what lessons can be adapted. Greg, thank you for joining us here on Suncast today.
1: Thanks, Nico. It's good to be here.
0: Greg, I'd like to get in the outset here, get a really clear understanding of why it is that you chose the solar industry as a, a central focus for your research. Maybe give us a little bit of the background of why you went into academic as a a career path and how you fell forward into the idea of I'm going to spend time learning how the solar industry over the last 20 years has had such a rapid cost decline and what it means for the rest of the transition.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, in college, I took courses in geography. I was a geography major. I took a course in energy. I took a course in meteorology that included climate change, worked in the private sector for seven years, worked in Silicon Valley, worked in a Startup in the late 90s. And, you know, one of the things that I kind of observed around me in in all that work is that I just had wished that there were as much people excited about doing e commerce in Mm -hmm. the late 1990s and early 2000s as they would work on energy. And I actually ended up working at a think tank and we did a study of comparing innovation in consumer products, IT, healthcare, and energy. Energy was lower by every measure we looked at, R&D spending, patenting, employment of scientists and engineers. And so I went to grad school working on this question of how could we stimulate innovation and energy? And once I got there, one of the technologies I looked at was just one that was changing the most, and that was solar. And so, you know, it was just like kind of on the margins. It had this elegant physics behind it, but it had always just been an interesting novelty and not definitely not something that would be serious for dealing with energy problems because energy problems are big. Climate change is a big problem. Mm. So you can't do something small to deal with a big problem. And that turned out to be exactly the wrong advice and knowledge. And that changed my thinking about that small technologies might actually be better at going big than, than big ones. But that's how I got into solar. Cause it was the one that was the most dynamic It was falling in cost. And that was in 2002. And it's come a long way since then
0: in my cursory understanding of the way that you put together your research around the the solar industry and the dramatic, uh, as I've mentioned a couple of times, the dramatic arc of product expansion and adoption uh, from the late 20th century to now, you pose a, a general question with the book, how did solar become inexpensive? So I'd love to hear some of the Theses that you tested around how solar became inexpensive, some of the things that you learned, like how we got below $20 a megawatt hour for solar uh, as a delivered cost and the learning around how you could support other low carbon technologies with what you refer to as analogous properties. Let's just unpack those three a little bit.
1: I mean, the first thing that I always tell people, probably more outside the solar industry, but even inside, is how cheap solar is today and then how far it's come. And it's been a factor of 10,000 from the first commercial sale of a solar system, which was on a satellite in 1958, where it was $300,000 per megawatt hour, to today where we have power purchase agreements below $20 per megawatt hour. And so how did that happen? And I point to three conclusions I come out of it with. First is that no one country did it. It was a relay race. No country maintained its technological lead for more than a few years. No company that was the biggest solar producer in the world ever stayed that way for more than a few years. It was a relay race that a lot of countries contributed to. But if I had to really sum it up, I would say that the US created the technology, Germany created a market, and the Chinese made it cheap. And it was that sequence that was really what worked so well. And part of what made that all work well is these international flows. It was people moving around the world. It was capital moving around the world. It was knowledge moving around. It was production moving around. It was cells being made in one place and put into modules other and then installed in houses and uh, centralized locations in other places. So those international flows are absolutely crucial. And then the final conclusion for applying it to other technologies is that it all went too slowly, even though it's been a dramatic change, factor of 10000 less than $20, cheapest form humans have ever been able to make electricity at scale. It took 70 years to get there. And if we wanted to develop a new technology today and we were going to follow that pathway and successfully get to like 3% of electricity supply 70 years from now, it's too little. So the real the question now is how do we go faster?
0: And as I suggested in the beginning, while we could spend a lot of time just thinking about kind of the individual details in which you cover in your book around R and D procurement and workforce codifying knowledge. There are a lot. There are a lot of aspects through your PhD study that you did explore specific to solar. I would encourage folks and we'll link to it to to take a look at the book. I think that the takeaways for other technologies is probably the most appropriate way that we can pay forward the learning from the solar industry. Before we go into the specific recommendations that perhaps you would have, what are the types of analogous properties that you point to and what sort of technologies on the edge of decarbonization get you excited in terms of where your learning can be applied?
1: Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, the solar playbook that we have now, it doesn't work for everything. It doesn't apply to, you know, large scale, chunky technologies where it's billions of dollars of investment to build one of them. But if you have a technology that's got properties where there's some technology aspect, where there's some kind of production technology rather than design technology, that seems really interesting. And then to me, the one that's really the the real crucial connector is iterations if you make many of the same thing or actually better make many of slightly different things you can learn you can apply new technologies apply new techniques figure out how to do it better have labor people working on these plants do better and you know that's the magic of solar like if we think about how many nuclear power plants have ever been built in the world it's less than a thousand yeah if we think about how many solar panels it's getting close between three and four billion. And so that's a million times more chances to improve and apply some new technology. So if you've got other ones like that that look similar, lots of repeated tasks you can incrementally improve, that's what batteries for electric vehicles look almost exactly like. The playbook's almost the same. The reasons those have come down in cost almost at the exact same rate are a lot of the same reasons. And so if you look forward, think about other small-scale distributed technologies where there's massive iterations, those are ones where you could learn from solar.
0: Can you give me some examples of technology that you see as readily applicable to the same type of scale?
1: Yeah. So, certainly batteries for electric vehicles, that's already going. Mm -hmm. Any kind of demand side technology where it's small and distributed and repeated. So, LED lighting has done that. You know, 20 years ago when I was looking at solar, LED lighting was interesting, but it was ridiculously expensive. And it's not like that today. And it's because of the same pathway. And the other ones, maybe heat pumps. So, air source heat pumps, and maybe ground source heat pumps too, where those are really taking off in a lot of especially European countries that played a big role in places like Switzerland for a while. And those could really become, uh, play big roles as well. And then the other area where it's more of an open question, but potentially really interesting is removing CO2 that's already in the atmosphere, because we're probably going to need to do some of that. Could you do direct air capture with a small scale approach like solar? And there are companies that are Trying to do that and actually have built some plants to do that, and we'll we'll see if if the playbook works well for them. But a lot of the same ideas is what they're trying to do.
0: One of the things that you point to that actually helped to to foster the ability for the globalization of the product category for solar to work was this idea of globalization of the industry. Yet you know we're seeing a sea change, not just uh, at home here in the United States, North America, but also in Europe, where The economy is becoming less and less globalized. We're seeing calls for manufacturing production tax credits here in the United States, suggesting that we would want to bring production back from China where they made it cheap. How does the changing global sort of economic landscape and domestic recall, if you will, of manufacturing affect the arc of innovation for climate change and climate action?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. It's something that I've like thought about and it's, it's prompted my thinking a bit more with things like the Green New Deal from a few years ago mm-hmm. where a big part of the original Green New Deal resolution was that all of the money had to be spent in the U.S. And it could be mm-hmm. products sold to other places, but all the money had to be spent in the U.S. And I just saw that and thought, well, that's just going to slow everything down. You know, yeah. like that's what made solar go fast is when there were better conditions in the U.S. than Japan, U.S. was leading. And when the U.S. took its eye off the ball in the early 1980s, Japan took off and the big companies there scaled up solar. And when those markets started to go away, Germany took off and then China and then other places after that. And so, you know, that's what has made solar grow at 30% globally for more than 30 years is Mm because you've had one country after another. And so if you try to do it in one place, would just stall. And if you had an election that changed things, you'd end up stuck. And so that globalization has been crucial for solar. But on the other hand, what you have as a result of these trajectories and changes is tremendous concentration of the industries. We've got overall about 80% of the production of modules is in China. On cells, it's 97% and wafers is high as well. And so now we've got this issue of diversity, of lack of geographical diversity. And so it's making sense that you have countries like the U.S. that start to enact tariffs so that maybe you know an additional 50% now of mm-hmm. the cost of imported solar panels, those coming from China, starts to make production in the U.S. start to look competitive. Or you have shifting production that goes to Malaysia and Vietnam and Thailand as well. And so I don't think that this concentration we have today of 80% of the value of Solar modules happening in China is likely to persist because from the past, no country's kept it that way. And if mm-hmm. you look at what's keeping it, you know, all of that knowledge is mobile. The machines are not necessarily made in China, the supply chain's there, and a lot of policy is there, but there's policy other places, and you could do it in other places as well. And so I actually see that we're starting to see a redistribution of where the production happens, but it's a crucial issue, and the US and others are likely to play a role. As well, and kind of making it less concentrated in China.
0: Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. It's built in DC to DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Learning from the ways that not just through the book you have looked at way of uh, the, the mechanisms for scaling solar and what can be adapted to other technologies. One of the key pieces, of course, as you pointed out, is policy. I'd love to know. Right now, we're seeing, certainly here in the United States, with the things like Build Back Better facing strong headwinds, to say the least. But globally as well, we're seeing governments take either decisive action in one direction or decisive action in another. And, and, uh, you know, Australia now looks like it's going to really have a very pro-renewables, pro-energy transition government. And Europe is in the midst of a war. What Maybe here to stay, let's stay with Canada and, and the U.S. and North America for the question, but what advice would you have to give policymakers around creating robust markets where these kinds of grid-edge technologies stand a chance to survive? I think it's a it's a foregone conclusion. Solar is going to do okay. Solar's kind of made it across the chasm, but what options are available and what, what advice would you give to those policymakers?
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree. Solar is going to do okay. You know, it's 3% of global electricity supply now and it could... Double And that would be tremendous. But that's not what the opportunity is. The opportunity is it does like 50% of all energy. And that is in the car in possibility in the next three decades. And that depends on going faster than we have in terms on the policy side. So Mm -hmm. I would say it's, it's two things. One is just creating expectations, expectations that there will be a market whether it's through subsidies or rate design or getting rid of barriers like interconnection agreements and making things flow more smoothly if there's the perception that 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 is the direction that we're going then you get private investment then you get to start to have domestic manufacturing or at least maybe more domestic float glass and more domestic assembly of modules and start to increase through the value chain that way that makes sense to companies if you see that policy is going to be on the side of making sure solar can, making sure that society takes advantage of this opportunity through through solar. That's to me is is the direction that we need to be heading is to create expectations that policy forces are behind this, that the private sector is going to play its role, that individuals will play its role, but that the general trajectory is to take advantage of this and make things go faster and get things out of the way. And I think that's that's what a set of policies needs to do. It doesn't have to be at all as heavy-handed as what Japan did in the 90s or Germany did in the 2000s. You know, we can have a much lighter touch in terms of the level of subsidies and the level of public funding, but it does need to be kind of asserted that this is the direction we're going so we get, you know, barriers out of the way.
0: If we focus on the opportunities here in North America where policy seems to have been created to spur not just the solar market but economic growth around Building back better. There are very strong headwinds uh, politically. Are there outlets for the executive branch, in particular Biden, with things like executive orders, to move climate action politically forward, even in the in the face of a Senate that is not in favor and doesn't support it?
1: I mean, I think what he's got are executive orders. So yeah, the Senate won't do anything like build back better. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court said we can't do something like using the Clean Air Act for the clean power plant to regulate power plants. And so Biden has executive orders and you know that can get things moving, keep things going. I think in the longer term, which is not that long, two to four years, you really do need mm-hmm. to have stronger legislation to get things moving. But to keep things going in the face of these headwinds in Congress and the Supreme Court, executive orders are the way to go. So it could be a price on Uh, social cost of carbon and maybe a higher price than in the past so that when cost benefit analysis of regulations goes in, you have to take into account the damage that putting CO2 in the atmosphere accounts for. Possibly there's ways to create some kind of subsidies, direct funding for infrastructure. That's something they even announced today on on adaptation. So yeah, there are things to do, probably support for manufacturing. That's another way. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's ways to keep things going. But it's hard to create these long-term expectations by him and his abilities. And so maybe that's going to come from states and from the private sector that kind
0: of see see the opportunities here. Yeah. I'm glad you took it in that direction. You know, the the problem with the executive orders, I could be totally wrong on this, but my understanding at least is it's really a stopgap. You mentioned that in the next two to four years we need stronger legislation to keep things going. And the reality is in the next two years, it's possible, likely even that. change again in administration. And those executive orders are a frail crutch for progress in that regard. Do you see any clear winners at the local level in terms of states who others could look to and say, man, the folks working on policy in this state really have their head on straight. Other states should be learning from them, A. And then I'll follow up with a B.
1: Yeah, I mean... I guess I look to states that have deployed a lot of renewables and maybe at present aren't having particularly helpful policy, but there's a lot of things going on in Texas that you know have supported renewables and that solar is playing such mm-hmm. a big role now. And that seems to be operating in a very helpful way because the peak generation from solar aligns with the peak air conditioning demand. And that right now today is like doing really well. That's not necessarily current policy in Texas is doing it, but it's the incentives that have led to all the solar and wind being built. California with its targets for renewables is you know definitely on the order of some of the European countries that are getting very large shares of their electricity from renewables. And then New York, which has a comprehensive decarbonization plan mm-hmm. is putting that to work and actually successfully building a link to Quebec to take advantage of the hydropower there. And so once you start to get these systems That are serious about decarbonization. It's not just about incentives for solar or wind, but it's about a a zero carbon economy where solar and wind play a big role. I think that's where you get these expectations aligned and you get these long term investments. So, yeah, New York and California seem to be the ones that are really doing that.
0: Yeah. And the work that NYSERDA in particular has been doing in New York is tremendous, along with the governor of New York, now the present governor of New York, really taking a stand saying, Does't really matter what happens in d c this is a, this is what we're gonna do in our state. I wonder when consumers get hit in the pocketbook when we'll call like Chinese tariffs get placed on industry writ large, right not just solar but washing machines and microwaves and all kinds of appliances that do come from not domestic manufacturing, and there are these macro industries like glass and steel. That we have as homegrown industries are are there vectors like glass and steel that the solar industry should be leveraging better in terms of creating alliance to strengthen the narrative around why it makes sense to invest in these clean energy technologies and these uh, these gr- these innovative grid edge technologies for climate change?
1: Yeah, you're right. There's something about steel, especially that has a connection to national security i guess is pretty a big reason why the us and other countries like protect their steel industry from foreign competition and you know you could start to say well energy security is not far from national security and so having a domestic solar industry for manufacturing industry aligns with that so you know it's a couple of steps and probably takes some appreciation to say wow this is something that's important now but i mean look at other countries and you can see how important it is like of China's exports by value are solar panels. And it's 10% of Malaysia's and 5% of Vietnam's. These are not like fringe industries that are just kind of interesting and growing. They're big parts of the economy and big parts of where they get foreign currency. And so you know, if we start to think of that opportunity for the US, I think then you start to see solar as something that is strategic. I would tend to think that it's probably less disruptive to provide subsidies or help for manufacturing support rather than increasing the cost of imports from China that's a pretty blunt tool and it imposes like you say costs on consumers and really threatens the livelihoods of the much larger number of solar installers than there are people employed in the solar manufacturing or even could be in the us so I would tend to say let's support manufacturing with some direct subsidies or other help that way rather than just Continuing to make Chinese solar panels more expensive than they otherwise would be.
0: Well, Gregory, as we bring it to a close here, I mentioned in the lead-in that you were a lead author for IPCC's Sixth Assessment Report, which, for those who have made it through any of the three thousand six (laughs) hundred and seventy-five pages, they know that it, uh, by and large, was, I would say, quite damning. It was there were a lot of sort of gloom and doom, as most of the IPCC reports tend to be, because it's meant to be a call to action. Right, however. There surely were highlights, things about the report that might be considered as bright lights, ways that we can think about the positive impact that is possible as we do try to address the vulnerability of humanity. As a contributor, as a lead author, any parting thoughts on the IPCC report and your takeaways from it?
1: I mean, so I worked on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report on climate change mitigation. And I, you know, i worked on five chapters and included uh, a key figure that was highlighted in the summary. And that figure shows the cost of solar going down and the adoption of solar going up. And it really is a good news story amidst, you know, almost everything else in that report is bad news about emissions continuing to going Mm -hmm. up. The impacts are going to be really bad. The policy is not strong enough. It's really trying to light a fire, under policymakers and others to wake up and like get our act together. But, you know, there are signs of hope, signs of emerging, uh, signs of progress and the progress in solar cost reductions and the adoption has been a really crucial one. And so I, you know, I I was thrilled to play a big role in that report. And my role is really to talk about some of the good news and make sure people didn't dismiss it because it's real and it continues to grow and the costs continue to come down. And, you know, I think we start to talk about net zero energy systems. And mm-hmm. in some cases, close to hundred percent renewable energy systems, not just for electricity, but for everything and solar playing a really big role. And that that's in the report now, because people are taking solar seriously as, as a really key solution, not just something that's kind of cool and interesting, which it is, but also something that could be really the core of the solution to climate change. Like I would say solar with wind and electric vehicles, like that's really the, the trumvirate that like gets to do most of the work to get us where we need to go.
0: Professor Gregory Nimmet is an internationally known scholar and professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, teaches on exactly what we have learned from him today, how innovation can be spurred through policy efforts and what we can learn from how the solar industry quickly scaled how it can be applied to other technological advancements as we seek to do what the IPCC claims is possible, reduce global warming and uh, extend our ability to live on this planet for another couple of hundred years. Gregory, we'll look forward to having you back when the next assessment comes out. And uh, in the meantime, we'll be directing folks to connect with you. How, if they were so inclined, would you encourage them to reach out? Uh, Where do you like to be found?
1: Yeah, I would go check out the website howsolargotcheap.com or my personal website net, and I really tried to summarize the 100,000 word book into uh, into a few web pages that that tell that story. So, yeah.
0: I think you did a great job and I'm so super grateful that you came to spend some time with our solar warriors here on Suncast. Look forward to having you back. Thanks Nico, enjoyed the conversation. Wow, that was that was fascinating. Thank you. Gregory for joining us this was a really really intriguing conversation my favorite part Greg pointed out no one country made this happen or maintained a technology lead for more than a few years it was as he put it a relay race the U.S. created the tech Germany created the market Chinese made it cheap but part of what made it all work was the people moving around the world and he gave some great examples you solar warrior apart. part of the people that make it work. And I love this community. If you also love the community and you're looking for ways to dig deeper, but you missed out on RE+, which was an absolute jam, a total blast, uh, I'm still reeling from the show. We'll try to give a little bit of insight and, and download on RE+, here in the coming days and weeks. But one of the things that I'm fascinated by is our fast-growing community. Over on our Discord server. Uh, it really just blows me away the the depth of how people are, are digging in and helping one another. If you haven't checked it out yet, go to mysuncast.com forward slash community. We'll also be posting up on LinkedIn my thoughts and uh and and insights from the further thoughts and insights from this interview with Craig Nimitz. I'm super grateful for the depth and breadth of the research that was presented from learning how solar scale to thinking about what does it mean for the rest of the race and, and his takeaway that we just moved too slowly with solar and we won't be making a dent at that pace. Does that resonate for you? Is that true for you? How are you trying to make a dent in this thing uh, we call the energy transition? How are you contributing? I'd love to hear your thoughts. We left our comments in a LinkedIn post that you should check out over on LinkedIn. And if you go to MySuncast.com and click on the episodes tab of the podcast. You will find this and every other 500 plus episodes, show notes that we've delivered uh, along with the social media links, research links. As a lead author for the IPCC Sixth Assessment Report, we'll be linking to that as well on that resource page. But I'd love it if you'd click on the link to my LinkedIn and go to the latest post where I've talked at length about how I see the the world through this interview. And I'd love your engagement, your like, if you'd be so kind, but also your comment to let us know that you're listening. You know who else appreciates that you're listening? It is the companies that come alongside us to sponsor this show. I'd like to give them a shout out and thank them for helping make this content free to you each and every week. You can find out more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Of course, that's how you could figure out how to partner with us as well to reach thousands of climate champions and solar warriors just like yourself each and every week remember you are what you listen to thanks again for showing up solar warrior it's half the battle